You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. So, we did three weeks on the Running the Race series. I just need to know, how many of you ran around this building during the three weeks? Anybody run in the building? A few of you, yeah. Okay, we'll keep it under control. But we're back in Daniel. So Jay preached on Daniel chapter 9 before the Run the Race series, where he talked, you know, we looked about missions, what we're doing with our mission partnerships. When he looked back in the past and saw the amazing things God had done here at Grace, and then looked into the future, how our big goal for the coming year is becoming even more connected with our community as a place of grace and even more intentional about sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. That's some of the goals we have laid out. Now we're back in Daniel. And this is the most confusing passage in the entire Bible. So, fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be confusing. Ready? We're talking about the 77s, Daniel 9. So if you want to go there, open up your Bibles or turn on your phone or whatever you do. Uh, And we'll put it up here too. So I look at this. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made a ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. Okay, now Mede over Babylonian kingdom. Huh, that doesn't sound good. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Okay, Jeremiah the prophet. Okay, well, let's go look at Jeremiah. Jeremiah 25 is what he's referring to here. This whole country had become a desolate wasteland. These nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. He's talking about Israel. Okay. But when the 70 years were fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation. Okay, so 70 years. Well, Daniel went in the first group, 605 B.C., when Nebuchadnezzar won the Battle of Carchemish and just devastated the place, just cleaned out the place, took a whole bunch of people to Babylon, including Daniel. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon. Well, that's what happened by the Persians that we're talking about here in 539 B.C. Any math whizzes here? How long from 605 to 539? Good, 66 years. I put a calculator so I know it's right. 66 years, if you're going 70, if that's an exact number, it means we're getting close, right? So what do you do when God's promise is about to come true? By prophecy, you pray. So I want to look at this prayer. Jay did this already and looked at it from the perspective of the righteousness of God. Just an amazing, amazing teaching four weeks ago. You all remember it well, I'm sure. I prayed the Lord my God and confessed... Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. But we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commandments and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name, to our kings, our princes, our ancestors, to all the people of our land. Lord, you are righteous. But this day we are 
covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far in the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. Seventy years worth. We and our kings, our princes, our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. And the prayer goes on a bit further. But you see the point. What do you do when God's hand is about to move? And you pray. And there's an important lesson here that we see in Daniel in this amazing prayer in Daniel chapter 9 is that there's an interplay between God's sovereign promise and our personal relational prayer. Prayer, I think, is a means by which we get involved in God's program. Because prayer isn't just words we do between God. It's also an energizing power in our lives. Now, there's some who see God as the sovereign one and we're little more than puppets on a string in his fatalistic decree of what's happening. That's not what we're talking about at all. On the other hand, there's a group of people who think God is an indulgent grandfather who just thinks, oh, people, just do what you want to do. It'll be fine with me. No, neither of those. But in between somewhere and something none of us can get figured out is what is the relationship because God's sovereign power, his great promise, his dependable faithfulness, and our prayer. Because we're told in Scripture, you have not because you ask not. And we get these very, 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 very fascinating kinds of things like in Second Corinthians chapter 1 where there's an interplay between our prayer and God working. How does that happen? I don't know. But the reality of prayer is we get involved in what God is doing in personal, interactive, powerful ways. Our prayers matter. And his prayer is a prayer of confessing sin. And that sin is not measured by, you know, cultural standards. That sin is not measured by what I feel to be right. That sin is measured by God's standard expressed in Scripture, in His Word. I see a lot of response to our world today. But in the various things that come into my news feed, I see almost nothing that's a prayer of confession. I see almost nothing that said it's because of us this is happening. Now, there's a faithful side, too. Daniel is not a sinner. I mean, he's as righteous as any man in the whole Bible, save maybe Jesus. But yet he's confessing his sin because he believes in God's faithfulness, his righteousness, his mercy declared in scripture and shown in life and remembered as we sing and pray and talk together. Picture of his prayer. And it goes on. Beginning in verse 17, picking up there, verse 17, we pick up and we see this. Now our God, hear our prayer and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes 
and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act, he begs. For your sake, my God, do not delay. Because your city and your people bear your name. That's a bold prayer. That's a bold prayer to kind of put that demand on God. There's a confidence and a humility. Because he understands the, his own sin. His own, it's not for, we can't, we can't beg of you, but we do. It's a bold, humble, confident prayer because of God's character and promise pleading for his compassion, grace, and mercy. That incredible passage back in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. The Lord, the Lord, gracious, compassionate God. Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness forgiving wickedness, sin, and rebellion, yet does not leave the guilty unpunished. That's the God that he's praying to. That's the God of Scripture. There are a lot of different portraits of God running around our world. We must be sure that our picture of God is a biblical picture. Compassionate, gracious, merciful, forgiving, but does not leave the guilty unpunished. Those who will not receive his cleansing. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God in his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I'd seen in earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. And we know Gabriel, the archangel. Interesting here, it just strikes me. The time of the evening sacrifice? Where is he? He's in Babylon. Where is the evening sacrifice done? Jerusalem. Except the temple was completely destroyed 66 years earlier. Now an old man who has not lived in Jerusalem since his childhood is still ordering his days by a divine worship calendar. This is a level of faithfulness by this man. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I've now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I've come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. So Gabriel is going to explain this. And I'll just warn you right up front, this is done at angel level. We are not there. <laughs> Seventy-sevens are decreed for you and your people in your holy city to finish transgression, put an end to sin, atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy and anoint the most holy place. What an incredible, wonderful message. But the 70 years of exile will end, but the kingdom of God will not immediately commence. They're going back to Jerusalem. But notice what I said. There's going to be a whole bunch of sevens. Seventy-sevens. What's that? Well, sevens are probably weeks of years. So, seventy-sevens? How long is that? That's like 500 years. We're going back to Jerusalem, but 
that time that he's talking about, 77s, 500 years. And it will finish transgression. Oh, Lord, haste the day. Put an end to sin. I'm just involved in a situation right now where a man, a pastor, has absolutely blown up his life and his family's life. Oh, Lord, for the end of sin. To atone for wickedness. Sacrifice the Messiah promised back in Genesis 3.15 where he'll crush the serpent's head. Lord, haste the day. That is to do the redemption from sin that we so desperately need. And the sin, of course, is not them. It's me that needs that transformation. The redemption from sin, the first three lines. But he goes on to bring in everlasting righteousness to seal up the vision, to put the finish on the prophecy, to appoint, anoint the most holy place or perhaps the most holy one. We desperately need to establish righteousness and it's going to be God's work to do that. We have a part in it, a big part in it. But we need God to move. And he said, 77s are yet to come. Come and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, okay, we're going to unpack this a little bit. Remember, this is angel level stuff. And I've been reading a lot on this and studying a lot on this, and I am just slightly confused. <laughs> the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Now we know there are decrees that did that. Within one year, Within one year, Ezra tells us that Cyrus sent the people back to Jerusalem. That sounds like it. In Nehemiah chapter 2, there's another decree. Well, the first one is to rebuild the temple. Then in Nehemiah 2, it says to rebuild Jerusalem. And that was in 444 B.C., almost a century later. Which decree is he talking about there? Until the anointed one... Okay, got that one. That's Messiah. The anointed one is Messiah, the long-promised deliverer, who, remember back in Daniel chapter 2, the statue, head of gold, feet of iron and clay, and the, the rock comes out of heaven and smashes the statue. That's the anointed one, the statue smasher. The anointed one, the ruler, comes. So we've got seven sevens to build Jerusalem, and then 62 sevens that are troubled until the coming of Messiah. We've got seven sevens, 50 years more or less, to rebuild Jerusalem after the decree. Then we've got 62 troubled sevens until the coming of Messiah. So we're going back to Jerusalem, but it's going to be a good long while before Messiah comes. After the 62, after, so we've got 7 and we've got 62, then after that, well, how long after? Immediately? After a while? 
the anointed one. Who's that? That's Messiah. Finally, we land on something we know. Will be what? Put to death? No, 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 no. Didn't you read Daniel chapter 2? Messiah's going to crush the statue into dust. Messiah will be put to death? How can you understand this? Just put yourself in Daniel's place. He saw the vision of the four beasts. He interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue. There's going to be a rock not hewn by human hands coming out of the heavens that will destroy. And he's going to be put to death and will have nothing? The people of the ruler, well, this ruler can't be the same one. He will come and destroy the city. Well, that's that one we've seen along the way. That's a super mega beast. So you've got the anointed one who's going to be put to death apparently by the super mega beast. Wait a minute, I thought, I thought Messiah was supposed to stop the mega beast. Then the end will come like a flood or will continue to the end. Desolations have been decreed. Is that the tribulation period that's talked about in Jewish literature a lot? Time of climactic trouble? Or looking back canonically, is this the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD by General Titus, who would later become Caesar Titus? He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. He is the super mega beast. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. He will set up an abomination that causes desolation in the temple. Now, this happened before. We see all kinds of stuff in the Old Testament where people take demonic stuff into the very temple of God. The reign of Josiah and Hezekiah, the two righteous kings in Judah, both of them cleaned stuff out of the temple. The abomination causes desolation. Is that Antiochus Epiphanes, the Greek general who destroyed Jerusalem in 167 B.C.? That's certainly an abomination of desolation. But Jesus, in Mark 13, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader... And it's clearly talking about the same one. And there I think he's talking about Titus in 70 A.D. We talked about that earlier. Paul, in 2 Thessalonians, but the man of law... Then will be the man of lawlessness revealed. He will exalt himself over everything, proclaiming himself to be God... First John chapter 2, talking about another man of lawlessness, except here it's the Antichrist is coming, and that many Antichrists have come. So that's the Antichrist. But while there's a big one coming, there are more here now. The super mega beast. And there are lots of super mega beasts. Every generation has a super mega beast who opposes the things of God. It's been discouraging to me to see how people anoint certain people as the super mega beast. 
I'm curious how many of you have a candidate in mind for super mega beast today. Well, see, it's not the Antichrist, but there are Antichrists that are setting themselves, and that's going to happen, but it's looking forward to a super mega beast. So the 70th seven, this is different than your notes. I realized I'd made a mistake after I sent those in. The super mega beast, or the 70th seven is after, after the cutting off of Messiah. So the 70th seven is after the cutting off of Messiah, the crucifixion. It is the age of the super mega beast looking to his final destruction. Again, that's different than your notes because I found I'd made a mistake when I said that in. The 70th seven is after the crucifixion. Okay. There, I mean, are you confused yet? Hang on, we're going to get worse. There are two major types of interpretations of this passage. Remember, this is Gabriel Stockton angel level stuff. The big picture is pretty clear, but the details get real fuzzy. This is one understanding. Future Tribulation Week, Ray Stedman, he's with the Lord now, but amazing man of God, started Peninsula Bible Church down by Stanford. I got to know him toward the end of his life, and his grandson's a good friend of mine. And he writes really well on this. He still has a great ministry through raystedman.org. Future tribulation, it got a long gap after the 69th week. So it looked like this graphically. Seven sevens, well, that's the rebuilding Jerusalem. The 62 sevens, that's the times of trouble. So in Ray's understanding, and many others, this begins in 440 BC, 444 B.C., with the decree of Artaxerxes to rebuild Jerusalem, Nehemiah chapter 2. This is when Nehemiah is sent back to rebuild Jerusalem, the walls of Jerusalem. Okay. So if we take that spot and we take 483 years from that 444 to the end of that time, uh, now remember these are lunar years. We work on a solar calendar. Jewish folk work on a lunar calendar. So their years are actually shorter than our years, slightly. That's why the Passover keeps changing its date, or Yom Kippur changes date, because they work on a lunar calendar. So it's not 483 solar years, it's 476 solar years. Okay, do your math. How far from 444, go 476 years later? Can you work it out in your head? I just want to look. It's 32 AD. But see, that's wrong. Because Jesus was not crucified in 32 AD. Can't be. Because we know the calendar of Passovers, and 32 was not a year where the Passover was on a Saturday, with Friday as a day of preparation. 33 was. There's a zero year. So actually, if you take the zero into account, it's 33. But see, the point is, from his perspective, this is all very precise. Harold Honer taught his whole life at Dallas, really did his degree at Harvard back when that was one of the top schools in the world and a divinity school. Still strong, but he was outstanding in those days. He did biblical chronology, and he started from the actual date of that decree in 444, went to the day of Jesus entering into the 
city of Jerusalem, we call the triumphal entry. And he took the number of days between those dates and added up 483 lunar years by day, 300 days a year, did all the math, 173,660 days, and it came out spot on to March chapter th- March 30, 33 A.D. Precision. Now you've got the seven years, but see there's a gap. Because the crucifixion is in 33, but the destruction of Jerusalem that's talked about is not that year. It's later. So there's a gap in there. How long is the gap before Antichrist? Well, we're still there. It's at least 2,000 years. And in that time, you have tribulation, this great difficult time with Antichrist, rapture at the beginning, the coming of Christ at the end. This is Ray Steadman's perspective. And the whole point is extremely precise. You can set your clock by biblical prophecy, Ray's understanding. Now, I don't think this is the best way to do it because I don't think the decree is the 444 decree. And you've got to mess things just a little bit to make it work at that precise level. So I don't find this as persuasive, but many people do, and it's an absolutely legit way to put things together. I'm with another group that think that this 70th is a two-half era that goes from Jesus' baptism to the destruction of Jerusalem in the first half, and then the second half is from there till the end, the second coming of Christ. So graphically, you would look like this, beginning in 538, which is just right after Daniel wrote. I think that's when the clock begins. But 70 years, well, Psalm 90, how long does a guy live? Three score and ten, or 70 years. What does that say for me? This is my last year of life. You won't have to put up with my sermons anymore. It's coming close. Well, see, 70 years, it's a, it's an, it's a span. It's not something that's done with precision. It's a span. And this is apocalyptic language, and many of the numbers in apocalyptic language are symbolic more than scientific. So we end up with the coming of Christ, the age of Messiah, Titus in 70 AD, and the coming. These are spans of things. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? Are you concerned about our nation? Then pray like Daniel. Confessing our sin. Depend on the faithfulness of God, being faithful in response to him. Pray those kinds of prayers. Be like Daniel. Serve human kingdoms. Wherever you work. I just talked to a guy after first service. He's working at Intel, doing an amazing job there. Serve well, but don't put your hope in human institutions and kingdoms. They will fail you. They will fail you. All of them will. Serve, but don't hope, don't ultimately hope in. That's a lesson we learned from Daniel repeatedly. Serve with excellence. Thirdly, God will preserve his people. 
even in distressing times. I looked and saw this map. Top 50 countries where it's hardest to be a Christian. Now it's a little different map. You see the United States is down to the lower left. And Russia is up to the top right. Those are white. There's no significant persecution in those countries. The number one country for persecution where it's hardest to be a Christian right now? No surprise, North Korea. Number two, Somalia. Number three, Afghanistan. Number four, Pakistan. Number five, Sudan. Increase all over. The thing that has really caught my attention and looked at this is there's a new country in the list. Number 45 is Sri Lanka. That's where Ted and Renate Rubish, our missionaries, have served their entire life. They were born there. Well, Ted was. That's now moved from a place where they've experienced a lot of persecution to it's on the top 50 list. A lot of increase. My student Nathaniel is in northern Nigeria. Tax against Christians have gone up 62% there in the past year. Because of Boko Haram. He's had his church bombed already. Dozens of people killed in the bombing. We're not experiencing persecution here, nothing significant for sure. But we have people who are. We need to pray for them and love them and support them. Because God will preserve his people, but it's distressing times. Prepare for a long obedience in the same direction. It's not going to be go back to Jerusalem and kingdom coming. It's going to be 77s. A long obedience, a faithfulness like Daniel, who was exported to Babylon as a teenager and 70, 80 years later is still serving with absolute excellence, still totally faithful to God and totally serving his pagan country. A long obedience. A marathon of obedience as we looked at the race metaphor in the past three weeks. Distressing times? Are we in distressing times? Two weeks ago, London. London Bridge and a market nearby. Murderous attack. Two weeks ago, Portland, Oregon. Max train, Hollywood station. As it approached, a very bad man shouting horrible things at a 16-year-old African-American woman and a 17-year-old Muslim woman. They tried to move away, and when three men tried to intercept him and stop him, he hauled out a knife and killed two of them and tried to kill the third. Troubled times. Yesterday, Denver, Colorado, protesters and counter-protesters. I do have to say, I wonder how the protests might have been different had there not been so many cameras there. Yesterday, Seattle, Washington, 
didn't happen in Portland because they canceled the demonstration. It would happen here. On one side, never Sharia law in America, that's Islamic law, anti-Muslim protesters. Across the street, separated by police, Seattle welcomes its Muslim neighbors. This picture made me so angry. Hate Trump, not Muslims. That's not the answer. That's not the answer. No matter what your view on Trump as president, that is not the answer to call for more hatred. This one made me laugh out loud. My Sharia, this Muslim woman says, knows no hate. She's very aware of Islamic extremists. Her life is in danger because of them. So what do you do in distressed times? We see that we stay calm. <laughs> we remain faithful. We point to Jesus. See, the calmness doesn't come from saying things aren't going bad. They're absolutely going bad. The calmness comes from the fact that we know God is at work in this place, and we have a hope of his working and transformation in the most horrible of straits. So we stay calm, stay faithful, as opposed to dumping God because he let bad things happen to me. And we keep pointing at Jesus, remembering that he was crucified. That one was cut off. Worship team, come on up here. We're going to sing. We live the kingdom of the Most High. This kingdom has been talked away all through Daniel. This kingdom that talks uh, about loving God. Be loyal to him among the various gods in our world. Be trusting that what he says is really true and orienting my life around it. Loving and serving our neighbor and our enemy. Not hating, not blogging about, loving and serving in the name of Jesus. And above all, sharing the hopeful gospel that God is at work in this world, bring transformation, end of shame, new hope. That's what we're talking about. Matt Redmond is an incredible worship leader. Born in 1974, his father committed suicide when he was seven years old. He lived as a extreme poverty. His, wife, his mother remarried a man so abusive he ended up in jail. That was Matt Redmond's early history. He came to Christ in a Luis Palau crusade. Luis lives over in Beaverton, one of the best evangelists in the entire world and a personal friend for many of us. He came to Christ, married Beth Redmond, another worship leader, and they've got five kids, and they do crazy things like our worship leader, just horsing around a lot, and really, really fun people. And they write worship songs, incredible worship songs, out of a horrific background. They've got A21 campaign that Beth started to promote justice in the world, especially in the area of sex trafficking. They're amazing, amazing people. And he wrote this song, 10,000 Reasons. 10,000 Reasons. The sun comes up. It's a new day dawning. It's time to sing your song again. Whatever may pass. Whatever lies before me. Let me be sing when the evening comes.
Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.